Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 61. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing just great. Fantastic. Everything's good. It is really balmy down here in the south, and I've got a slight headache, and I think it's brought on by the weather. I, I don't know what. Maybe I'm a little sensitive to the sunlight and to the humidity right now. It's really muggy outdoors. And I was doing some weed whacking, and I'm, I'm just all out of my groove. I, I'm trying to calm down. Rob, help me calm down. You got you, you to gotta talk me down. I got to settle in and relax. Dude, the weather today was beautiful. <sighs> was it? See, I was in my dark office with no windows. I had no oh. idea. Oh, I'm sorry. Very sorry. No, I got to spend uh, some of the afternoon sitting outside next to a pool. My, my girl and her friends were swimming. It was really fun. Fantastic. Good for you. I'm happy to hear that. And yesterday, I had the pleasure of going to Helen, Georgia, and we spent the day up there. We tubed on the rapids, which was a lot of fun, lots of giggling and laughing, and uh, ate at a German restaurant. <laughs> and we did all sorts of things, but our day, it wasn't ruined, but it was one of those sad endings. The whole day was planned out. We're going to do this, do that, do this, do that, and then before we leave, we're going to stop at the German bakery and get one of their eclairs. Because they're so good. Oh, And yeah. we get all done with the day, and we're pulling up to the parking lot of the bakery, and it's empty. And they close. And we're like, oh, oh. no. So sure enough, the sign, closed Wednesdays. No! Wednesdays? <laughs> oh, that's not right. <laughs> Especially a day that's not Monday. Mondays are the days that bad things happen. Not Wednesdays. But, but on a, in a tourist town, it makes sense. Things are closed on Wednesday. But it was sad. Uh, Very sad. But it was mm. a perfect day otherwise. My wife made donut holes tonight. Oh, oh. they're so good. Oh, you should, made, made? Made from scratch. <gasps> what did you cover them with? Just powdered sugar? Well, they just got a glaze. She makes oh. a homemade glaze too. Oh. <laughs> On the way home, I got some other ingredients for dinner and she didn't tell me she had made anything for dessert. So I nearly grabbed a candy bar, but I'm so glad I did it because <laughs> they were way better. Now I'm a little jealous. I wasn't invited over. I wouldn't have been very good company with this headache. Oh, you got a headache. I'm sorry. Well, I'll survive. Hey, question for you. Yeah. I, I want to talk about another sci-fi film in the coming weeks. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to figure it out. I've been through some sci-fi movie lists and nothing yeah. has grabbed me. Hmm. But one thing, I kind of have an inkling, uh, like a, a little bit of an urge to watch would be anything to do with NASA. I'm just kind of in the mood for it. Do you have any NASA-related films you think you You've seen Apollo about? 13? Yeah, but it's been ages. It's been over okay. 10 years. You see Apollo 11? I or it was called Apollo? The I thing did. that just came out last year, the year before? Big IMAX movie? No. I, yeah, oh, no. Dude. Oh, no, no, no. They, they took footage, like real footage that no one had ever seen before. And the, the movie guy, he went through it all. And recordings, audio recordings that had never been broadcasted to anyone before. They're just sitting there in storage. Interesting. And so you have the the audio feed from the different people on Earth and the and the the the, the guys up on the, the the Apollo capsule and oh it's amazing. I mean it just goes through the whole thing. Sweet. Yeah, I mean, right. it was it was fantastic. You want to talk about that one in the coming weeks? Um, we'll put it on the schedule. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so if our listeners want to try and track that down and yeah, we'll do an Apollo program, we'll talk about the movie, catch it and watch it before. Let's do it in August because that will be an anniversary of the moon landing. It won't be like an even numbered anniversary, but that's okay. Oh, that's so close. That's great. Yeah, I love it. Cool. Good idea. 
Glad you thought of it. I'm just glad that I was alive before man landed on the moon. Mm. I might have only been 10 months old, but hey, I was alive. <laughs> yeah, it's a very different sort of experience. I was going through some of the history again this week about the moon landing, and it's just not the same because I know it was, to me, it was just history. It was just history books. You know, it was just pictures on magazines that were old and outdated. And, you know, fantastic that man achieved it. But when you're told, yeah, that a uh, man has already explored and found all the continents, and there's, you know, now we know that the world is not flat, and that you know, man's not going to sail off the edge of the world, right, dude. That, well, back up, back up. You just said something we've have corrected on this show before. No one ever believed the Earth was flat. Yeah, but that was what I was taught. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Ah, yeah, I was. I, I, I didn't want. I did not want to have to correct you. I was like, no, I can't books. correct my co-host. <laughs> this is terrible. Okay, yeah, no, okay, I got it. Know, I got it. From context, we didn't really go into this when we were talking about the flat earthism. But uh, you know, growing up, you know, everything from Bugs Bunny cartoons to they sure did. You know, well, the Earth is flat. Uh, I remember that. Yeah, you know, even a you know Christian leaning, you know, really religiously conservative uh, books for homeschoolers, you know, will talk about how yeah, yeah, this stuff was going on, and people really did think the Earth was flat, and you know, Christopher Columbus straightened them out. You know, you know, it's out there; it's in the history books. Oh man, I am I am reading a book right now. It is amazing. I love it. Absolutely love it. It's called 1493 by Charles C. Mann. Oh. And it started off with Columbus. Really? Huh. And what, what he did and what, what changed in the world after Columbus. And I thought it was just going to be, oh, all the Native Americans died of diseases, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's so much more than that. He's tying together things in history that, and science and technology, et cetera, that I didn't even realize. Oh, good. My kind of book. Why is the Philippines, why was it a Spanish colony? Why does the Philippines speak Spanish? A strange place for it, right? Well, their answer is once they discovered silver in South America, they started importing a bunch of African slaves because the Native Americans didn't live very long to work the silver mines. They're sending all the silver back to Spain, but they also started exploring westward into the Pacific from Mexico, and they found some Spanish junks, some Chinese junks, in a place that was later going to be founded as Manila, in one of the bays. And he said, hey, you have silk, you have porcelain, we like that. Oh, you like silver? Oh, you really like silver? We got lots of silver. And they literally started a worldwide trading network from Spain to China, going through Central America, using Bolivian silver. Interesting. Well, I, I didn't know that. No. I had no idea. And then he's going through the English... And you know they're they're founding Jamestown in Virginia, and they're like, oh yeah, North America is only a couple hundred miles wide. It might be a three or four day trip, and then we can get to the Pacific coast and we can start trading with China. You see, yeah. And that was a huge justification for continuing to send people to Jamestown, even though they died like flies. Yeah, they called it condition conditioning. Right, you have to get conditioned. Mm. To the malaria and the yellow fever and <laughs> and etc. Good and oh man, it's an amazing book. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, anytime you want to talk about what you're reading about, that's. Well, oh, I think I think we might have to do a book report when I finish reading it. I think I might have to do a book report. I'd like that. I'm just sucking it in. There's so many fascinating things. It's, it's just right up my alley too. I mean, we they're just talking about now. Um, oh, the, it's called they call he's calling it the Columbian Exchange or the um, the homogenous scene. That is the homogenization of biology 
because of, and starting with Columbus, worldwide, all these crops, all these bacteria, even earthworms, mm. honeybees, he talked about honeybees in the Americas, and on and on and on and on and on. All these things just get exchanged across the world. It's just, it's fascinating. Wait, so if he talked about the honeybees in America, I thought that traditional honeybees as we know in America came from Asia. Am I wrong? Traditional honeybees as we know it is a European mm -hmm. honeybee. European. Which is a cult cultivated from somewhere else. But they've been here a long time then, huh? Well, they've been here since the 1600s, and they were brought here by Europeans. Okay. And so were earthworms. That's really hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. What? Earthworms? I've told people that before because you told me that, and nobody believes me. <laughs> no, no, please, no. Don't, don't earthworms just, you know, like tunnel from one end of the world to the other and spread anywhere they want to go? You know? uh, most earthworms, like the earthworms in your backyard, will never leave your backyard. Oh, that's a good point. Wow. They don't move very far in their lifetime, <laughs> so they don't spread quickly. But wow. through, you know, but propagation of plants and things, you know, you dig a, dig a plant, bring it somewhere yeah. else, you just brought some Take earthworms some soil with, with it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Fascinating. Well, okay, you're going to just have to report back about the book when you're done. Okay. All right. So I know you have lots to say about the main subject, so I will let you get started. Okay. Well, let's see um, how much I have. I've actually kept the notes a little bit light because I know that I have 10,000 anecdotes in my head. <laughs> I'm worried that some of my anecdotes are not sourced properly or might be contradicted. And some of the things I've read lately actually contradicted some of the things that I thought I knew. Okay. Well, history is tricky like that. History is tricky like that. And we learn and you know, you read a book and it turns out later on that the guy was being real speculative and you didn't know it. That's always risky. Yeah. But the subject is submarines, the amazing underwater menace. Ah, oh, this is so good. The peril of the seas, etc. Um, this is a great subject on many levels. I thought the first submarines were invented at a certain time, which I'll get to in a second. But it turns out, according to Wikipedia and other websites, there's a lot of ancient references to people doing submarine-like things in like, you know, hundreds of years BC. Really? Hmm. You know, maybe a diving bell. What's a diving bell? Uh, just a, uh, it looks like a bell, and you just put it underwater, and you could be inside it underneath the, the bell. Okay, gotcha. The thing is, the, the further down you go, the more the air compresses. You go down 33 feet, and it's only half the volume of air that you started with. So, you know, you can kind of freak out when you're in a diving bell <laughs> be, yeah. because of the, um, the loss of volume of air. <laughs> There's one particular thing. I, I know I just saw it recently. Um, there's a sort of like an Assyrian soldier wearing a bronze helmet, but he's only wearing a loincloth otherwise, and he's holding on to a goat skin that's been inflated with air. Goat skin? Yeah. And people keep saying, see that, see that? This is underwater. They could swim underwater. And I'm like, no, you can't. You can't swim underwater with a giant balloon. Oh. You, you would need ballast, and there's no <laughs> rocks tied to his waist or anything. In this picture, there's no, there's no ballast. Yeah. So, no, I think they floated across the river or something like that. But, you know, the, he's holding it to his stomach and he's got like the, the neck of the thing is like sort of like a, almost like a breathing tube. So it could be a rebreather. But rebreathers, you can only take, you know, so many breaths of air from the same bag before you run out of air. We talked about that in some other episode. I remember talking about that yep. maybe a year, a year ago. About diving. Okay. Yeah. About, yeah. About scuba diving. There's only so many times you can do that before you run out of air and you can't do extreme swimming underwater like that. So I think they're just floating. Some people say they're underwater, whatever. But there's a lot of ancient 
trials. It never took off, though, because of the inherent perils of being underwater with primitive technologies. I had a friend of mine in, my, in Miami, and he and his friend had invented a, um, a, a diving helmet. Basically, they took a five-gallon bucket and, and put a window in it. <laughs> okay. And you stick over your head, and it could go underwater. And the guy up on the boat would just be pumping a bicycle pump, and there was <laughs> an airline to the top of the thing, so you could go underwater. And both of them accused the other person of stopping pumping. <laughs> and they got mad at each other. And it was years later where he realized, oh, once you're so far underwater, the, the water pressure is such that you can't force air into the helmet anymore. Oh. Doesn't matter how much that guy's pushing, you can't push the air into the helmet because the water pressure is pushing the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> so he might have lost a friendship due to physics. Uh. Well, at least his friend's reputation was redeemed. Well, maybe. I don't know if he knows him anymore. Yeah, I guess in his own mind anyway. So let me ask you a question. Thinking about the idea of going underwater and not dying. (laughs) Take a guess without looking at the notes, which I typed in the answer. Okay. When would you say, when would you totally guess out of the air when a first successful submarine was invented? (laughs) Uh, I know for a fact that they were around during the Civil War. And I remember hearing bits and pieces of stories as old as the Revolutionary War. So I would have to go with around that time. That's that's an excellent guess. You know more than most people. Mm -hmm. That was good. That was good. Now, the answer is 1620. See, that's about 80 years earlier than I would have guessed. That's crazy. A lot of people working on this. Wow. It wasn't just this one guy, Cornelius Van Dribbel who was working for King James I of the King James Bible fame, that King James, you know, the pilgrim King James, that guy, 1620 in the Thames. We don't have a good description of this thing. We're not sure if it was towed by a boat or under a boat, but from the accounts, this thing went underwater and stayed underwater for three hours, and everyone assumed that they died, and then they came back up again. And they claimed that they they went all over the place underwater. Whoa. And they came up when they wanted to, but uh, no, you'd run out of air. But (laughs) the guy claimed that he could make oxygen. They didn't know what oxygen was, but he claimed that he could refresh the air using a chemical reaction. I think it was saltpeter. This is before we understood chemistry. Whoa. And so did he have some secret formula for creating oxygen? Whoa. And yeah, so 1620, That's I also wild. heard a while ago, mm-hmm. I don't, I have, I wasn't able to find it this afternoon. It's been like mm, probably three hours uh, putting the information together for this thing and, and double checking some, some facts that I thought I had in my head, but I could not find the substance for a memory I have that King James I went underwater in a submarine. That's insane. That is amazing. That is insane to think that, that the king went underwater. When so many other technologies were not around for a long time, how did this one get so advanced? Well, it didn't. That's just it. They had an idea, and you can slap together using you know 1600s technology, metal and leather and things like that, something that will go underwater for an hour or two. Yeah, it'll be no good the next day. You have to, rip, <laughs> you know, it'll be rusted out, and the leather will be destroyed, and, and all this. But you could theoretically do it. It just it was so expensive. And so impractical, you couldn't use it for commercial purposes because it's too expensive. You couldn't use it for military purposes because it wouldn't, couldn't move the thing. I mean, they didn't have engines yet. How do you propel against water when you're underwater? Uh, slaves. 
Just get them on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Another. I mean, I got a whole a whole series of questions here for you. Just just for fun. That's the way I I organize this one. What do you think is required to have a submarine? What are all the things you think you need to have a submarine? <sighs> Just start thinking. What What do you need? You need air, obviously, right? That's <laughs> tricky. That's tricky. What That's very you- tricky. <laughs> yeah, it's very buoyant. Tricky. So you need materials that are not buoyant, so you can get it to go down. Yes, you need then ballast. You need to be able to, and you to, need a, a way to control mm-hmm. the ballast. You don't want to just go down. You also want to be able to come back up again. <laughs> okay, for for par, pardon me for my ignorance. I've heard the word many times, but what does that word mean? Ballast is that the hull of the submarine, or is that well, a particular? Well, yes and no. For a ship, the ballast usually is rocks they put on the bottom of the ship to keep the sails pointing up and the bottom, the keel pointing down. So it was bottom heavy. You don't want a ship to be top heavy. They made it bottom heavy so it wouldn't roll over. A significant number of ships flipped accidentally because they weren't properly ballasted in history. Gotcha. And so, in fact, you can go to various places around the world and you can see them. Even in, um, in Brunswick, Georgia, there are piles of ballast rock in the harbor. Because the ships would come in ballasted. They take on a cargo. They don't need as much ballast. So they'd haul <laughs> the rocks and just throw them overboard. Oh, gotcha. So another thing would need uh, need to have a, a really good light source <laughs> that isn't going to kill you. <laughs> to be underwater in the dark? Yeah, okay. So you need light. I didn't think of that one. That's good. That's good. I'd be, I think that if I were a man on a, on a, sh- on a submarine, that would be lights. the thing I'm afraid of the most is what Being happened the to dark? the lights. <laughs> okay. So well, I have, I added, I have added lights to the list. Thank you. I didn't think of that one. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So what else? To make it practical. You're going to have to have really good storage for the supplies. I'm assuming that uh, a submarine in the olden days would not have to be down for very long. So maybe the supplies are not hugely important. Yeah, exactly. It, it would be, you know, go out for an hour or two. Okay. So you don't need food stores. Like from World War One on, you definitely need a lot of supplies. In fact, in, starting in World War One on, before they went out, the, the, the sub would load so much food that all the floors were covered in food cases. Whew. And as the patrol went on, you got more and more headroom because you'd be oh, eating, of course. eating your layer one layer at a time as you went down to the floorboards. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Funny. Living in your pantry, as it were. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Okay. How about navigation? That's what I was about to say. Is okay. that you, Because you can't just propel the thing right into the broad side of you know, the ocean. No, it's true. Be, okay. But, but you just said propel. That's, that's the fourth thing. Oh, the, the fourth thing I thought of, you added lights for five things. The fourth thing is propulsion. Okay. Yeah. Well, and but we, when you say navigation, I'm thinking like, you know, you just like don't want to make your, your submarine <laughs> go right into just any old obstacle. True. Don't want to run into any big fish or. Well, navigation involves more than one thing. One is steering and two is knowing where you are. Yeah. That would be especially hard in those on days, a submarine. in the early days. Yeah. I mean, think how hard it was in, on a ship. You had an astrolabe. You could know your latitude really well. You never knew your longitude, not until the late 1700s, which we talked about Harrison's clocks. Longitude was almost impossible to know, but you could know your latitude. <laughs> and you could know how many days out of port you were and about how fast you've been sailing, if you could account for the current that you're in. And how, you know, how long it should take to get to place the places that you're trying to go, but in a submarine? Yeah, you could, I mean, even, <laughs> even up through World War II, they were coming up and taking star sightings. 
Oh, that's so cool. Definitely yeah, in World War I, because they couldn't stay under very long. But they would take star sightings constantly, anytime they could, so they could get a fix on where they were, or they'd be lost. Because in a ship, you can basically get your fix anytime you want. In a submarine, there's only certain times you can do it. And so most of the time, you're wandering around essentially with your eyes closed. So navigation and propulsion. What propulsion? In the early days of submarines, they hadn't invented the screw propeller yet. Oh. So I'm assuming the screw propeller operates like the just a kind of like a uh, a screw a shaped crank. Yeah, just like the back end of an mm-hmm. outboard motor. Yeah. Now we have made them better in modern times using you know mathematics and physics and computers. But essentially, way back when, once it, as soon as they invented the screw propeller, it didn't change very much. Submarine ones are different, and and big ships are different, but. If you look at the, an outboard motor and you look at the earliest propellers, they're, they're, they're very, very similar. They turn in a circle and they push water backwards. But that hadn't been invented yet. The first ones, as far as we can tell from the, the handwritten descriptions, they were powered by oars. But was that because they were being towed from a boat? Or they had some underwater oar thing that we can't even imagine? We don't know. Huh. But then they invented hand cranks, as in a bunch of guys cranking a big, long piece of metal that was attached to the propeller. That was the Civil War era. Then they invented steam, which was really difficult because steam engines are really hot and you can't run the steam engine when you're underwater because it would suck all the oxygen out of your ship. And then they invented batteries in the 1880s. And then these electric submarines came on. That was World War I and on. Oh. And then nuclear came on board in 1955 with the USS Nautilus. Wow. But could you imagine being in a hand-cranked submarine? No. <laughs> Not in a million years. <laughs> um, as far as navigation goes, earliest navigation was literally a porthole. Oh, that's ridiculous. They didn't see anything that way. No, especially in, in a river. You can't see anything in a river. In an ocean, yeah, if you're lucky. But even then, um, think of glass hundreds of years ago and our ability to seal things against pressure. I mean, you couldn't go very deep with that window. And plus, you, you don't, there's no, no, uh, hole, no, there's no windows in modern submarines because you don't want a hole in the, in the pressure hole. You want it as, as sturdy as possible with as few holes as possible because that uh, takes out many failure points. But the first ones literally had windows, which meant they could not go very deep. Wait, so they were not entirely submerged? Well, they were. They could be, depending on what we're talking about, because there's so many different okay. variations and so many different inventors and so many different things we call submarines that it really, you just got to gloss over it, just saying this is the older history of the submarine. And you don't really start talking about submarines until 1900, when all the parts uh, okay. came together yeah, that, that we I know that today. Mm-hmm. The periscope wasn't invented until 1893. So if you wanted to go somewhere, you had to be on the surface and look, and then you could submerge and think, hopefully go in a straight line. But sonar, we, we didn't have sonar even through World War I. We had microphones. We could listen, passive sonar, and that might have even been directional. So, oh, there's a ship coming from you know, 10 degrees off the starboard pow, bow or something like that. We invented the active sonar, the pinging in between the two wars. So it was really important in World War II. But how do you know what direction you're going when you're underwater? What are you going to use? A magnetic compass? Uh, something tells me that wouldn't work as well. Well, it does work. I, in fact, I read very contrary opinions online as I'm, I'm asking myself the question. I think they work. And people's like, no, they don't work. And other people say, sure, they do. And other people, more recent people say, look, 
you're in a big metal thing. Now, it's essentially a Faraday cage. So oscillating currents, or oscillating fields are not going to penetrate, but the magnetic field is a steady unidirectional field. So it does penetrate, except there's so many metallic things, specifically things made of iron. <laughs> yeah. And you have electric lights and other machinery in there that's electrical. That all produces magnetic fields. So magnetic compasses don't work well in a submarine is the answer. We didn't think of that. Well, you can get it to work if you ground truth it. So, you know, put the captain up on the conning tower and point it due north with a with a compass that's above the, the structure of the submarine. Or maybe, you know, he knows that that lighthouse is due north. And he says, okay, it's due north. And the guy looks at the compass. Oh, it's 15 degrees off. Whoop. West, east, south. You know, basically you go in a circle and you take markings and compare the, the known direction to what the compass is telling you inside the submarine. That helps a lot, but it's still, there's so many things that mess it up, like turning on an electric motor or turning it off. And then you have the other problem of, well, magnetic north isn't the North Pole. So I remember growing up on Long Island as a Boy Scout, and we learned how to use magnetic compasses, and we had to, we had to subtract a couple of degrees because from where we were, due north and magnetic north weren't in the same direction. And some places it's worse than others. It depends. The thing is also the magnetic pole has been moving very fast over the last couple of years. So all that stuff that I learned as a kid is all gone. I don't know what the magnetic declination is uh, for even where I live in Georgia right now. It's totally different than it was even 15 years ago. Interesting. Huh. So that doesn't really apply to submarines because, you know, yeah. you don't go on 15-year patrol. But if you're up in the northern waters and your magnetic north is pointing, you know, 30 degrees away from true north, that makes navigation a little bit complicated. And so they invented something called the gyro compass, which is just a gyroscope. And gyroscopes don't change direction. You can turn underneath a gyroscope and the thing will just keep on spinning. And it's on a gimbal, so that if the sub rocks, the gimbal will rock the opposite direction and the compass just sits there. And voila. Now, there's a lot of physics involved in that and there's lots of different processions involved. You have to have a lot of correction factors to keep that thing accurate. But as long as you have all those things in place, you know exactly which way the North Pole is. Not magnetic north, but the North Pole. And that was one of the greatest things to ena enable uh, submarine navigation was a gyro compass. By 1900, they had submarines that could go over 100 miles underwater without coming up. Hmm. How fast could they go? Do you know any numbers concerning speed? Yeah, no, just a few knots. They weren't perfectly streamlined. The screws weren't very good. The uh, electric motors are big and heavy. They're getting better fast, but they just they weren't nearly as efficient as anything we could do even 50 years later. How did knots translate into miles or kilometers? Uh, a knot is, uh, well, one knot is a nautical mile per hour, and one nautical mile is slightly greater than a regular mile. I think, did we talk about this before? It's, yeah, I think we did. It's uh, just a little rusty. Yeah, it's like, oh, man, I should remember this now, but you asked me a question out of the blue. It's um one minute of latitude. Or is it one second of latitude as a nautical mile? Something like that. Three, yeah, 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 it's, it's 360. I don't remember. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Terrible. I like being the fount of all knowledge, and then and, and some facts just slip out of my head. And some things I've learned many times in my life, and I forget them again. Yeah. And that's one of those things I tell myself, Rob, you're never going to remember that. Don't Well, bother. the reason I have a hard time remembering something like the knots to miles conversion is I grew up not knowing. Ah, so when I remember the. Yeah, what I remember better is how, for the majority of my life, I didn't know. So, somebody could tell me five more times and I'll keep forgetting. All right. 
one knot is 1.15 miles per hour. Okay. So it's just the same thing. It's just, it's, it's, you just go one to one. It's no big deal. You're fi- yeah, okay. 15% off. That's a rounding error. Anyway, I'm just looking up definition of a nautical mile. Great. 2000 yards. There we go. Oh yeah. It's one minute of latitude. That's it. So degrees, minutes, and seconds. It's a minute of latitude. It's one sixtieth of a degree then, or 1,852 meters. Now, I hope I got that right. I'm, I'm, I am doing a little bit off the top of my head, but I think that's right. Okay. We won't All right. Anyway, a little, little detour there into the land of forgetfulness. All right. We don't get successful submarines that are, I mean, really practically useful until after the 1900s. But the first submarine that actually was used in naval warfare that worked, as in it sunk another ship. I have seen the submarine. It was a US or the CSS Hunley. It was made by the Confederate States of America. They actually built several. The, the, uh, the United States of America built several also. Uh, this one was built in, I think, Mobile. It sunk, killing the entire crew. They raised it. It sunk again, killing the entire crew, including the inventor, Hunley. They raised it. They put it on a, sh- on a rail and they shipped it across the country on land to Charleston because they wanted to raise the siege of Charleston. And this is one of the most amazing stories of maritime recovery, the most amazing stories of bravery. The, the story is just is, is brilliant. In fact, I know a guy, my dive safety officer, and when I was in, in graduate school, he, he was involved in diving on this wreck site and raising it. What they did is they built a, um, a thing that could be lowered around the submarine and they strapped it like in 20 places. They put a strap around the submarine and they picked it up incredible and they brought it to land and it was completely filled with mud meaning whatever was inside was preserved including the bones of the sailors that were on board wow so they went out at night and it was a nice you know calm-ish night and they sighted a ship and they steered toward it and then they submerged and they rammed into it now here's where a lot of the story has changed all the things that that i read about it the archaeology tells us oh no this is really what happened I know that the crew had practiced sitting on the bottom in their submarine until a candle went out, and then they would sit there longer, meaning there wasn't enough oxygen to burn a candle, and they would sit there for as long as they could, and then they would slowly turn their hand crank, all one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think there's eight of them, turning this, this crank, and they would power the propeller, and they'd come back up to the surface. Or maybe they could blow a ballast tank or something like that. But they, they didn't have a ballast tank as we know it, like enclosed. Literally, there was water in a tank in a submarine. And it would, the tank would fill up or empty out depending upon how much ballast they needed. That's kind of um, hairy because it's just an open <laughs> tub. I would want a, something that was closed off and so the water couldn't spill into my living compartment. But, you know, whatever. They figured things out later. And so when they found this, they found all the sailors in place as if they didn't struggle as if after that they sank after they sunk the Housatonic, they did they blew the thing up they assumed that either the sub sank or they went down and laid on the bottom until all the you know all the heat from the surface went away you know people trying to bomb them and stuff like that and then they either got stuck or something malfunctioned and they just sat there until they died and that would have fit with their um their rationale because that's what they had been practicing just sitting there yeah until they couldn't stand it anymore and then doing it for longer, and then they come up. Wow. But then as they're, as they're looking at the, the pieces, because, I mean, this is in a museum. I've been there. The museum in Charleston, you can go down the Charleston waterfront, and you can pay an admission fee, and you can go and see 
a Civil War submarine. Dude. <laughs> so, it's small. It's, I mean, you could not stand up in it. I could not stand up in it. And it's not, I mean, if you're, if you're leaning against one side, you're kind of in a crouch position, you could reach out and put your hand on the far side of the submarine. Oh, wow. It's a little tube, five feet high, maybe four feet across, maybe. And it was designed to have a spar on one end, which is a ramming thing. And it would ram a, a pointed projectile into a ship and then they'd back away. And when they backed away so far, a rope would pull and it would trigger the, sh- the thing to explode. And the ship would go down and the submarine would just kind of go away. But when they're looking at it, that's what I thought. When they're looking at all the pieces, they're like, no, 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 no. In fact, it might have even been electrically discharged because they found some copper coils and things. Like, what's that? But what became clear was that it was an impact detonation. Oh, and huh. they sank within like 20 feet of the Housatonic. Wow. And it was on the, the um, ocean side. So the current apparently in the river was going outward when they, when they did this. They landed really close to the Housatonic or close enough where they could say, okay, this thing actually was blown up. They blew themselves up with their own shock wave. Oh, wow. It didn't rupture the hole. It just killed the guys inside. <laughs> so they died. Basically, their internal organs got jellified. Wow. By the shock wave of their own blast. That's the <clears throat> new theory. Yeah. It has more weight to some of the older theories, but it could be wrong, but that that's, seems to be what happened. And I remember reading uh, the story of this. And one of the guys that the, the, the um, I don't know what his position was, the captain of the ship, I don't know what his rank was, but he had been in one of the big battles like Manassas or something like that. And he told his girlfriend or his wife in a letter that he was saved because he had a silver dollar in his pocket and he got shot and the silver dollar stopped the bullet. Huh. And I think it was in his pants pocket, not his breast pocket. I'm, I don't remember. But he carried that as a good luck token his whole life. They found that in the submarine. Wow. Right in the position where he would have been sitting, they found a silver dollar that had been hit by a bullet. So he really did have this. Hmm. So that's the CSS Hunley, the first successful sinking of an enemy vessel in world history by a submarine. Nice. 1863. That is amazing. All right. Questions for you. Mm -hmm. Can you name two different US presidents who went underwater in a submarine? No. No, I... um. Now, we, we did discuss this the other day, and I know one of them because of what we discussed. Okay, which one? I don't remember the other one. The one I do recall is Theodore Roosevelt. Okay. In the 1800s, when he was president, he went that underwater wild. in, in yeah. Long Island Sound. <laughs> they would never let that happen mm-hmm. today. <laughs> no. But yeah, he went underwater in Long Island Sound. And because of that, he, from that, he made a decree in the Navy that any time a submariner or submariner, however you want to say it, is on a submarine, he has active duty pay. Whether or not he's in a battle or not doesn't matter. It's active duty pay when you're on the submarine. So submariners are paid better than other sailors. And he decreed that the submariners or mariners must get the best food in the Navy. Yeah. (laughs) And so if you want to be, you know, go underwater in a submarine, it takes a special breed of person. I know several submariners. In fact, I know one of them is a very good friend of mine. I'll talk about him and, and my oh. other friend in a minute. Um, but the other president who went underwater in a submarine, there might have been others, but definitely went underwater, was Jimmy Carter. Oh, huh. He was actually a student at my alma mater, Georgia Tech, for a couple of years, and then he left to go into the Navy, and he was on nuclear submarines in the Navy. Nice. Wow. 
So okay. yeah, there might have been other sub other presidents, you know, I'm sure have gone on a submarine, but I don't know if they've ever gone underwater. But those two definitely. Okay. And the, the Teddy Roosevelt story, it just fits his personality. Totally. It's a, cool, it's a cool story. That guy was nuts. I mean, he was insane, but he was a man's <laughs> man. I don't yeah. like him as a president, but whatever. He was a man's <laughs> man either way. All right. I would like to spend some time talking about just a couple of examples. Sure. One of them, um, I, I've read a lot of submarine books. A lot. I mean, military history is my favorite subject other than science. And when I'm not doing science, I mean, if you looked at my Kindle, which is on my phone, and we just scrolled through the books I've read, mm-hmm. mostly World War II books, but any war, anything about military history, I read. And I love you, it. You mean you, the marine biologist, enjoy reading about the water and what happens in it? Okay. Wow. Well, yeah, but but that's, huh. it's really, I, actually, my favorite thing is tank stories. Oh, wow. Movies about, ta- movies about tanks. Okay, that's a surprise. Yeah, so it's it's not it's not the navy or the water that appeals to me really. Okay, it's just as I'm reading military history. Yeah, I have come across a lot of submarine stories. Inadvertently reading lots of submarine stories um, from different perspectives. I mean, German perspective, Japanese perspective, American perspective, British perspective, common sailors, captains, admirals, presidents. There's so much to to the submarine story that we don't even realize it. Like early World War II, our torpedoes were a disaster. What do you mean by they were a disaster? We kept shooting them at Japanese ships and not sinking the ships. Oh, okay. Mm. And so- I was afraid, I was afraid you were going to say they were like blowing up in the inside of the hull of the submarine. And well, that was a problem with guys. some of the German design. Ah. Some of the components on some of the torpedoes could not get wet. Oh. And so they had to open them up every day and do service to the torpedoes Whew. and on and on and on. But our, our torpedoes were having huge problems with depth. They were just going under the ships or they hit and not explode or they'd circle back and blow up the firing submarine. And that's not something submariners want to talk about. No. Oh. No, you don't want to score an own goal when you, when you fire a torpedo. <laughs> no. But we did figure it out after lots of work and GM, brilliant strategy work, brilliant, brilliant work. And then they invented sonar that was accurate enough to detect mines. That was tricky. That's difficult because the mine's a small little thing. And once they could detect mines, they could map out minefields. And once they could map out minefields, they didn't do it all at once. They did one ship went through and came back again. And then they released an entire nine submarine fleet against the inland sea of japan i think it was 1943 Mm. we went through the minefields that were guarding all the straits leading into the china sea and we started blowing up everything we could find wow not just military targets food oil industrial ships anything that was there fishing just blown up and it was kind of kind of gruesome to think that we were causing people in japan to starve yeah but the morality of World War II later in the war was a lot different than it was in the beginning of the war. Right. I mean, just as far as I'm um, getting off tangent here, but they were discussing whether or not they should carpet bomb cities. No, 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 we're going to do precision bombing. And then by the end of the war, we firebombed Dresden, <laughs> which was not even a military target. Yeah. And we incinerated everyone in the city. And then Hamburg and Berlin and Tokyo and on and on and on. And we're just blowing everything up and then sinking every ship with the U-boats. So, going back to U-boats now. 
the, the I don't know. My, I'm trying to figure out my favorite submarine movie, and it's hard to know. Probably U-51. I think I saw that one. When when the Germans, and they get sunk, and they're laying on the bottom in, on, the, on the bottom of the Strait of Gibraltar, and that one guy, Thomas, has to go and fix basically every component for some strange reason, and he saves everybody. But then he wigs out, and he's going to get court-martialed, and, and oh, just brilliant, brilliant. Anyway, I'm reading all these books, and I read a book called Steel Boats, Iron Hearts, mm. a U-boat crewman's life aboard U-505. Wait a minute, U-boat? That's a German name for submarine. And sure enough, it's a German sailor who was a young man in World War II. He wrote this book in 2005. Wow. And he was on, he, he described the life of, you know, getting ready to go to submarine school, how only the cream of the crop ever went. He's getting into this boat late in the war. Everyone else who went in a submarine is dead. Because in the early, the happy days, they call it, of the submarine warfare in World War II, they were, the German submarine fleet was eating us alive. By the end of the war, a German U-boat put to sea, they had no hope of returning. <laughs> That's how good we got. Yeah. Basically with radar, if they stuck their mast a foot above water, we could detect it with radar from far away. Oh. And this silly people running the submarine program demanded that their submarines report home every day. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> so even if they're reporting in code, even though we had the Enigma, you know, they kept on changing the code, but even if they were reporting in code, we could still use direction finding and say, oh, there's a submarine right there. So, so yeah. we always knew where they were. So this guy's late in the war and he's discussing his, his crews and he's discussing the fact that the, um, the submarine ports in France they couldn't ever get a submarine to go out and come back because the French people working on it were constantly sabotaging the submarines. Ugh. They drill a small hole and maybe put you know wax in it or something like that. <laughs> and so it would go down and all of a sudden spring a leak, everyone's dead. Or they'd, they'd just do a pinhole in the, uh, in the gas tank, in the diesel tank. <laughs> and so no one would notice a problem except the plane flying over would see an oil slick. Hundreds of miles long, <laughs> they, they know that there was a submarine under the water, and so all that kind of stuff. But his submarine was captured at sea. It was the first time that a naval ship had been captured at sea since the War of eighteen twelve. <laughs> wow! But it was captured at sea. They tried to scuttle it. Yeah. But we had a team that was practiced to go onto sinking German submarines. And sure enough, they get there and it's sinking, but they notice that they had taken off a hatch cover, it was letting water in, and threw the hatch right next to it. So they just took the cover and put it back on. I think they used a t-shirt or something for a gasket, and they put it on and screwed it down to stop the sinking. <laughs> nice. They pumped it out, and they brought it back to Bermuda, and they took all the, sa the sailors on board. I think only one guy died, I think. They got all the German sailors, and they put them in a POW camp and didn't tell anyone that they were there. So the Red Cross did not know that we had taken all these guys and hidden them because <laughs> we didn't want the Germans to know that we had, that we wanted them to think that their submarine had sunk. But we got their recent code books, we got their recent Enigma machine and all that kind of stuff. So that was a fascinating story. And this guy would show up at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry where his submarine was. Oh. And he would spontaneously give tours to people about his submarine. Ah! Wow. Well, so I read his book. And then I read another book called Clear the Decks. Now, that book was written in 2005. The, the Clear the Decks was written in 1951. 
It was written by the admiral who was in charge of hunting down and capturing U-505. I'm halfway through the book before I realized, oh, oh, this is from the American perspective. This guy is talking about submarine warfare technology and strategy and how the U.S. learned how to completely eradicate the German advantage in submarines. And it is just, it's awe-inspiring how good we got with technology. And he wrote that right after the war. And then I got to go to Chicago for a trip for CMI a couple years ago. And I went to the Museum of Science and Industry. And I went there and I said, there's only one thing I want to see. And I went straight to the submarine. And I got a tour of the submarine and, and looking at it. And I mean, it's there. So I've, I wasn't able to go on it, but I have seen the Hunley up close. And I've seen and been on five, the U-505. Growing up on Long Island, if you want to get off of Long Island, you had two choices because we were on the East End. You could either drive 80 miles and try to go through New York City, or you could drive 20 miles west and then go to the North Fork and drive 30 miles east and then take a ferry from Orient Point, Long Island to Groton, Connecticut. And Groton, of course, is the headquarters of the electric boat company that builds naval nuclear submarines. And so often on a ferry between Long Island and Connecticut, I got to see a nuclear submarine transitioning. Long Island Sound. No. <laughs> I was like, that's a nuke, man. That was the coolest thing. Dang. So, yeah. So, so that's, that's the U-505. Amazing story. And uh, we should have links to all these books in the, in the notes, by the way, eventually. Um, yes. Another one I want to talk about is a K-129. Now, K, that means it's a Soviet submarine. It sunk in 1968. 1968 is the middle of the Vietnam War. And no one knows why this Russian submarine sank. Really? To this day? To this day. Well, there's speculation. I read a book. Now, this is one of those things where I read this book. I'm like, this is amazing. Everyone online is like, nah, this is, you know, conspiracy theory and this, and he got this wrong and that wrong, but I'll get that in a second. It is surmised that it got in a collision with a U.S. submarine, the USS Swordfish. Because SOP in the day was that we always had one of our fast attack submarines on the tail of one of their ICBM submarines. So, the, you know, a, a, a missile submarine they called a boomer. Boomer. And we always had one of our fast attack subs trailing every boomer, if we could. And the USS Swordfish pulled into a, a harbor in Japan with significant damage to the sail as if it had hit something underwater. As if it hit K-129, which is now unaccounted for. But we knew where it went down because we had long-range sonar listening buoys on shore and in the ocean, and we heard basically an imploding submarine sound in three different stations. And based on the time of arrival, going back to our need for accurate clocks in our episode, we did a couple episodes ago, but based on the time of arrival, they were able to triangulate the location. The Soviets looked for it, and they looked for it in the wrong place, but we knew where it was. So we sent a ship out called the Glomar Explorer. I remember reading about the Glomar Explorer in marine biology class. And they didn't, in the textbook, they didn't tell us what the real purpose of this was. They said that it was for exploring, uh, harvesting manganese nodules off the seafloor. Which is actually an interesting (laughs) thing because manganese is a metal and it's expensive. And there's tons of nodules on the seafloor full of manganese. We can harvest them from three miles deep. Yeah, well, not that easy. (laughs) <laughs> but the Glomar Explorer had a grappling hook underneath it. You don't need that for um, harvesting, you know, six-inch diameter mang- manganese nodules. 
and that would be a big one, but it had several grappling hooks, and it had a giant moon pool in the middle. A moon pool is like a, um, it's a hole cut in the bottom of the boat. Okay. And so if you, if you walk into the ship and you walk, you can see water from the inside the ship. There'd be like a swimming pool inside the ship. So that doesn't make any sense though. Because like you were saying earlier that uh, there was the earlier devices that were shaped like a bell. And yes. I asked, well, what, was, what does that mean? And you said, well, it means that you hold it up like a bell and you put it on top of the water and push it down and it traps air on your inside. Yes. Well, a moon pool is um, not- <laughs> Hold the bottom of the boat. <laughs> yeah, that's not showing the moon. So where did it get its name? No. I, I Maybe because it's, it's round? Uh, no, I think because it's dark. Oh, oh Okay. See, it's funny because when I think of the moon, I think of it being light. Well, yeah, I don't know know why they call it that. But there's two ways to do this. You can either have it in a hold and pressurize it so the water doesn't bubble up, or you have the hole at the water line. So atmospheric pressure inside the ship and the water in the moon pool is the same level as the water outside the ship that you're floating in. Because most ships don't, they don't sink 30, 40, 50 feet down. And a well-built ship that's light and wide it's only going to sink 10, 15 feet, depending, totally depending on the ship. But you don't have to have a 100-foot deep moon pool. It could be pretty shallow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so they sent this under the guise of searching for manganese nodules, and they grappled the K-129 and raised it from three miles down. It was called Project Azorian, and significant parts of it broke, but they did bring up a big chunk of that submarine with dead sailors. And when the Russians learned of it, they were infuriatingly mad. But our president at the time could have been Reagan. He actually, I think it was Reagan. I think he shut down with Brezhnev and he showed him a movie filmed aboard a U.S. ship where we buried the Russian sailors with full military honors. Mm. We buried them at sea and it totally diffused the situation. And the Russians were like, wow, wow, they treated our men very well. But the... um. The, the book that I read that people are saying is conspiracy theory, um, the guy said that the ship, the this, this, this submarine was off course and it was exactly at the longitude and latitude that everyone knew that if you wanted to launch an ICBM at Hawaii, you would go to this exact spot and on and on and on. And, on. and there was a KGB officer on board, which wasn't normal. And they had replaced the captain. And, and so he was saying, he was trying to hint that there was a Russian plot to nuke Hawaii in the middle of the Vietnam War, and to blame it on China. And what happened was because of the the dangers of nuclear warfare, the US and and the Soviet Union, we got together along, I mean, decades and decades ago to say, okay, look, if you're going to launch a nuclear weapon, you have these fail-safes in place. If everyone has these fail-safes in place, then nothing accidental is going to happen. And both sides said, okay. And this guy said that the KGB officer wouldn't have known what the captain knew. And if any one of the steps wasn't followed correctly, the um, self-destruct mechanism would have gone off and blown the, blown the submarine to smithereens and sunk it. Mm. So if someone tried to like do a coup d'etat and take over the submarine and launch a nuclear missile, you can't actually do it. But that's what everyone's saying. No, that's not true. And so maybe it did collide with the USS Swordfish. Maybe it sunk by on its own. Maybe they just had a leak. Who knows? But the thing went down and we went and picked it up from the bottom of the ocean. Crazy. Okay. Last thing I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. I want to mention this great episode so far, and it's been so fun, is a book called Blind Man's Bluff. Blind Man's Bluff. The Untold Story of American Submarine Espionage. Wow. 
It is an amazing book. Now, my my dear friend uh, who was on a uh, fast attack sub as a sonar man read this book about the same time I did. And I was talking to him about it. And he goes, oh, that's what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> what? Because, <laughs> well, everything was, all the information was compartmentalized. And you're on a secret mission. Not everyone on the ship knew everything about the mission. Only the captain knew everything. So even as a sonar man, he knew he was in the North Sea. And he might have known that there were Navy divers in the, decom- in the compression bell. But he might not have known that they were leaving the submarine in ice cold water at hundreds of feet deep to attach a device onto an undersea cable that would listen to all the communications on that cable that ran from one Soviet base to another, etc. Hmm. I mean, the espionage, it is shocking. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. <laughs> and the things that we did during the Cold War are unbelievable. I mean, the exploits. The daring do, the crazy things. I mean, he also told me a story of we uh, had invented a super duper quiet submarine and we wanted to test it against, I think it was some Soviet port. They wanted to know if they could detect it or not. So they took one of our older submarines, which is a bit louder, and we knew that they could hear it. And they sailed that into this port and the quiet submarine was behind it. And then the noisy submarine left and a quiet one just sat there. And after a couple of days, they blasted Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and they played that as they left port. Because they didn't want to be quiet when they left port because they didn't want them to practice listening to the quiet submarine. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> this is funny. Smart. So, for all of our, our dear listeners, we really appreciate you. We hope you've enjoyed our quest of the underwater world looking at submarines. And I hope I've inspired you to go out and watch the movie K2 or watch the movie um, Black Sea. That was an interesting movie. Or, or um, any one of the World War II American submarine movies. I mean, there's some really good stuff out there. Cool. And submarine movies, by and large, mostly, they try to be realistic. Because that's the whole thing they try to do, almost always. Some of them are a little goofy, um, but most of them they try to be realistic. And it just makes for a better movie, I think. I love submarine movies. Sweet. All right, I'll check those out too. I'll put them on my watch list. In fact, I'm going to look up best submarine movies. and I'm going to put the list uh, in the notes. Or if, yeah, if you just want to throw in a few more of your own as well. So thanks everybody for joining us on this underwater quest. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with friends and family. And this episode's links and show notes are available at our website on Das Boat. That's what it was called. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. Das Boat. Whatever I called it in this episode, I'm dumb. The movie is Das Boat. That's the movie. Das Boat. How do you spell Das? D-A-S. Okay, that's what I thought. Just, Just checking. All right. Sorry. Cool. Yeah, well, Death's Boat is going to be in the show notes, too, which are available <laughs> at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 61. And if you want to get Equinox Plus, that is our bonus episodes, content, and more for our members, that is available on Patreon. A link to that is in the show notes as well. And you should also check out biblicalgenetics.com, which is where Rob is working on his video series, and he talks about biblical genetics. And it's also available on Facebook and YouTube where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at JCS Darnell. 
or take a listen to my other podcast. It's called Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And goodbye, everybody. You've been listening to Equinox. That was a well-done delivery, sir. The submarine topic is just so... It, it, it stirs the imagination. You can picture so much of this stuff while you're describing it along the way. It's really good. Cool. Sorry I interrupted you there, but I was... um no, it was fun. I was completely mangling everything I was saying. And <laughs> all these, the letter designations, U and K and all the numbers, and I just, I just can't keep them straight in my head. And... Trying to put it all, say it all at once. I could done, have done one. Someone sits me and down to conference. Hey, let's talk about U505. Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. But adding all those things together, and I can't believe I forgot the name of Das Boat. Duh. Whatever I called it. <laughs> people are like, what is this guy talking about? He doesn't know anything. What I was going to mention, too, was uh, I guess we're in the after show now. So now's a good time. It wasn't related to our, our general discussion, so I didn't want to mention it then. Uh, okay, so I'm working on the next episode of our talk show for the ministry. It's with uh, Gary Bates and Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, our peers from the office. So the episode is about uh, the moon landing. And something Gary mentioned in passing was a movie called Capricorn One. And I'd never heard of this film. Have you seen it? Okay, I've definitely heard of it. I've never seen it. I've definitely heard of it. I was surprised that it is... Not, you know, now, okay, so here's the issue with the film. It's It was made in 1979 or 78, and it's depicting this idea that NASA fakes a mission to Mars because they they know there is a problem with their rocket ship and the life support system will not sustain the astronauts. And they would be, it'd be too expensive and humiliating to cancel the mission. So they force the astronauts to comply with their scheme to deceive the world and go through with the rocket launch, but not actually do the mission. So a lot of the conspiracy theorists have gotten stirred up by this movie over the years because Rob, here's the funny thing. Like I was watching parts of the movie today, as far as entertainment value goes, it's not a bad 1970s film. It's actually pretty good. Just on the merits of like, was this told well? Does it have interesting acting? Is it entirely predictable? It's not. It's actually a pretty interesting film. So I, I just found it interesting. I wondered if you had seen it. I I can say that you should probably watch it once. Um I I honestly I would love to. I've seen it advertised enough. I um, found the whole thing on YouTube for free. Cool. Yeah. Well, when you do get around to checking that out, let me know because I'd like to know what you think of it when you do. Okay. Uh, what I'd love to know is like how hokey are the things that they show from uh, this, you know, their version of NASA because they do show quite a bit of like command and, you know, just in general scenes and, you know, some of the people at NASA don't believe the fake mission and so they 
they have to kill them off, you know, because they can't let anybody talk. Obviously, it makes NASA look kind of evil in the in this scenario, but it also mm. makes NASA look good because you're rooting for the astronauts, and they were NASA's own best and brightest. It's just the the director who's gone bad. So it, it's sort of a you know, it's kind of a gray you know situation of you know same organization has produced dirty rotten scum and also america's finest heroes of 1979 and you're rooting for it interesting yeah interesting more to it than i than i expected all right so well i can hit stop if you want i guess so i just wanted to say um if we're still recording things for audience stuff um i can't wait for next week i am so stoked to do terraforming i have gotten on the bug and i just i just want to know how would you make Mars or Venus livable? Oh, 